big voice, so please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis 11, 1 through 9. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and break them, bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may be, make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. Then nothing, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down to confuse their language, and they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. This is the word of the Lord. use my stage voice. How about that? That would work. Um, so Babel, I know you're all familiar with this story, right? Or may, maybe you are, maybe you're not. Um, when I told, t told my mentor I was preaching on the Tower of Babel, he texted me back and he said, I'm not even going to ask why you're using that as a text. So um, we haven't discussed it yet, but anyway, here we go. How about some word? Um, do you believe people are basically good? Spoiler alert, you're not, right? Um, it's not that we're all as bad as we could possibly be all the time, but within us, we're capable of committing atrocities against both God and man, right? I love um, <clears throat> that party animal, Martin Luther, had an interesting thing to say about this. Um, I have often said that a man has no more dangerous enemy than himself. It is my own experience that I have not without me so great cause for fear as within me, for it is our inner gifts that incite our nature to pride. So, um, it's what's inside. <clears throat> We're going to talk about that more in a minute. Um, last week, David was talking about John 3.16, right, which is like the, Christ, the Christian bumper sticker um, idea, and in there he focused on the phrase, will not perish, right? And he talked about the problem that we have, uh, which is sin, right? And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But he was really getting to the gospel. John 3.16 gets to the gospel. The gospel is good news, right? Um, I like to say it's really difficult to comprehend what the good news is if you don't know what the, what, sorry, what makes the good news so good if you don't understand what makes the bad news so bad, Right? Okay? Because the bad news is bad. So we're going to look into the word and see what it has to say to us about who we are. Okay? So when you look into the word, it is like looking at a mirror 
fact, it tells us that. In James 1.23, whoops, sorry, that's ahead of me. I'm not quite there yet. We're going to look in this, and we're going to look at Babylon, Babel, and go backwards a little bit. Yes, I'll relax in a minute. All right, I promise. (laughs) Um, And I put a little note in my outline here that I caveat at this point that I'm rather careless with personal pronouns throughout this. Um, there will, this will be loaded with disp- disputable re- interpretations of passages of Scripture and unanswered questions. I really wish we could all just stop now and have coffee because it would make the conversation a lot easier. But no, um, we're going to look at Genesis. Genesis is a wild ride, my friends, right? It's pretty much nonstop from beginning to end. It goes really fast and then it slows down. Then it goes really fast and slows down. Um, it has this epic poetic beginning, God's authorship of everything, including us, and the first couple, and that one nanosecond of bliss, where they were eternal and perfect. And how does the scripture define what that felt like? They were naked and unashamed. I just want you to think about those two things for a moment, right? Ah, yes. That didn't last. We don't know how long that lasted. But then we had the fall, the infamous fall. I'll talk about that in a minute. And that set off a chain reaction of events that was a progressive path of destruction until God is ready to start over in Genesis 6. It's amazing that all that happens in six chapters of this book, right? And then God does a do-over. He just wipes it clean and starts, well, almost from scratch. The Babel story is after the flood, if you, if for those of you who like wonky details, it's somewhere between 200 and 250 years after the flood, probably. Um, but it's sort of a culmination of the sequence of offenses of man um, that sets up the story of Abraham, which of course, as you know, is the story of redemption because it's the story of Jesus, okay? So all of this, beginning of the book, is prologue to get to that story. So let me take it through just a little bit, taking it apart. Um, the whole world had one language and a common speech. I hadn't thought about that that much before, but think about this. Adam apparently was created with speech, right? I mean, he talked to God, and then Eve shows up, and they seem to be talking to each other okay. Um, and so there was just no need or occasion for people to, to manufacture or change that too much. It says, as, so that's just one little detail that's important for the story later. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there, which is in Babylon, which is Mesopotamia, which is pretty much modern-day Iraq. And trace your, trying to geographically trace this. Uh, and because I'm an architect, I like this next detail. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. So they were working on some techno- technological um, issues because they had supply chain problems. Because if they were in Israel, thank you, if, if they were in Israel, they would be building it out of stone and things like that, right? So here there was lots of dirt, so they used a more natural solution to come up with these materials, and I think it's really funny that they talk about the specs before they talk about the big idea, um, which in our business we don't do too much, but you see them doing it. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the whole face of the earth. Okay, you see this sort of two-pronged thing there. Number one is they had a fear. The back of the sentence is a fear. They didn't want to be scattered over the earth. And the first thing was essentially the way they're going to prevent that, which is we're going to build this monument to ourselves. 
But the Lord came down to see the city. Why did the Lord have to come down and see the city? That's a really great question. There's only a few times in the scripture where it says God comes down to see if the uproar was really what it, he had heard it was. Um, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, check this out, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. What? Just let that one sink in for a minute. Uh, come, let us go down and confuse their language so, so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, which um, Babel sounds like the Hebrew word for confused, right? So um, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So what you have, just sort of basically, in Babel is uh, a building committee <clears throat> of ambitious, talented, inventive, cooperative, and apparently very well-capitalized uh, individuals, entrepreneurs, who faced the threat, which is they didn't want to be scattered over the earth. So how can we prevent that? Oh, I know. We'll build a tourist attraction. So they decided that they would build this tower that reaches to the heavens to make a name for themselves. All right, well, what, what does it imply if you're making a name for yourselves, right? It means that down through time, people will come and see this thing and we remind them of how great you are, right? And so their names would not cease to be in the forefront of everybody's mind. And I want to point out that when God comes down to see this, he says, uh, this is an incredible line, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they do will be impossible for them. I'll let you, you know, over coffee figure out why that's a problem for God, but let's come back to that in a moment. This is not the first time he says something like this, right? Back in 322, and I'll turn there and actually read it so I don't misquote it. He says, this is right after Adam and Eve um, and the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us. Knowing good and evil. So, we, <laughs> the, oh, I did have that written down here. How about that? Um, it's such an interesting observation that God looks at us and suggests what we are capable of. Right? And then he imposes limitations on some of the things that we are capable of. Probably to prevent some of the things that happen when he doesn't impose limitations, right? Um, so I like to call this next part, good gifts gone bad, um, and the imposition of God's limitations, right? So you probably already know this, but you were all created in the image of God, right? Therefore, it is perfectly logical and reasonable to expect that you possess some of the attributes of God. What, is, what are some of God's remarkable attributes? He's extremely creative, and he likes to build things, right? He's, he's inventive, he's endlessly creative, all those sorts of things. That that bubbles up in the human spirit is a reflection of an attribute of God, right? <clears throat> so, what's the problem? Well, the problem is, as Luther reminded us, everything is tainted by the fact that this fall thing happened back in Genesis, right? So, good things, attributes of God that we, that we participate in, can get us in trouble if they're not properly managed and corralled, right? Okay, so just remind you of a couple of these instances. God, God, God imposing limitations. Back in Genesis 3, my 
yeah, one of my least favorite chapters of the Bible. Um, after everything happens and God is cursing everybody, he says this. He says, in order to prevent them, they must not get to the tree of life and live forever. And so what does he do? He sends down cherubim and a big flashing, flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard. It was basically a police barricade to keep them away from the tree of life. What potential it had in terms of them living forever is a pretty profound mystery. But he still imposes that limitation. In Babel, he imposes the limitation of chaos to scatter them over the whole earth. He did this by confusing their language. Just one, one second on the word confuse, right? So confuse, it's a conjunction of two different words. Con, anybody? Con? Against, thank you. Okay, con means against. How about fuse? Together, right? So what is confuse? Confuse is against together, right? So it's taking things apart. It's blown crap up, as one of my fellow elders likes to say. Um, Thank you. <laughs> so imagine you're on a construction site, and we're here, and, and Jay, we're, we're coordinating some very technical process, machinery and cranes and things like that are involved, and I call over to you, and Jay, hey, Jay, you've got to calibrate that, um, you know, fragostat on the thing, or it's got, and you suddenly go, comment? Je ne comprends pas, right? And it'd be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know that'd be a nightmare. It'd be a disaster, right? Um, and they, they couldn't continue. It would be very frustrating on top, in terms of that. And so they'd probably abandon the project, which is exactly what happened. Dave, first image, kind of like this. Does anybody recognize this building? Do you? Do you know what it is? Okay. <laughs> this is a little piece of work by our creative and loving friends in North Korea. Right? It's a hotel, never finished. Supposed to be a stunning tourist attraction. North Korea, let's plan our next vacation. Okay. <laughs> These guys in Babel ended up experiencing exactly the same thing. So they got partial construction of this thing. We don't know exactly how far until God came down and scattered them. He said, nope, nope. All right, so when we look at this, we have to say, what was the big offense in Babel? And I will tell you that commentators are all over the map in terms of what it was. But here's the ones that I kind of discern to be my most favorite and most likely possibilities. First off is the obvious one to me. It was a vanity play. Um, they were building the tower to make a name for themselves, which was an expression of hubris, right? So if somebody asked me, what does hubris mean? Um, you say, why don't you just say what it means? Don't say hubris. Um, hubris just sounds so academic, right? So I, I sort of like that. It is excessive pride or self-confidence or arrogance. That is the definition of hubris, right? Something that would move us to do something. I know, hard to imagine. Funny detail, there is today an informal in international competition for building the world's highest building like that. Do you know what, all know what that is? It's in Dubai, yes, that's in UAE. That is the Burj Khalifa. Um, and just fun fact, Khalifa means vice regent. So the building itself is a reference to royalty and a reference to um, prowess and a handful of other things. Okay, thanks, Dave. But the simple reading of the text makes the most sense to me. They wanted to make a name for themselves, which is the hubristic sort of angle on this. 
Um, and I have a little quote that I found that says, the hatred of anonymity drives men to heroic feats of valor or long hours of drudgery. Or it urges them to spectacular acts of shame or of unscrupulous self-preferment. In the worst forms, it attempts to give the honor and the glory to themselves, which properly belong to the name of God. Now we're getting somewhere. Okay, there's another alternative argument that the tower they're building could have been one of these. Anybody know what that is? A ziggurat, thank you. Okay, a ziggurat, which is kind of a layer cake kind of affair with a path to get to the top. You can see these Aztecs built these. I mean, lots of people built these around 3000 BC. So it's not an uncommon form. Do you know what this building was for? I'll tell you, okay? This was a critical element in idol worship. You see that teeny tiny room up at the top? There would be a, a, uh, a desk and a bed in that room. For what? in case the idol god needed assistance to come down and be with the people. So this is typically created in a civic plaza. Think of your favorite civic plaza. You got a church on one side, government stuff on the other side. This would be close to the temple. It was not the temple. This was simply a form to help this god, idol god, to come down and hopefully visit the temple and perhaps show the people what he or she or it wanted them to do in order to win favor. Okay, so really, um, it, they may have been doing this as well. But the tower said, the text says that they wanted to build a tower that reaches to the heavens, so I think they were trying to push the limits of this, and maybe it was something more like that, right? Stairs and ramps up to the top, or perhaps down from there. Um, could have been what they were trying to do. That's an even better access for their idol god. Well, if we just make it 400 feet closer to heaven or wherever this person dwells, right, it'll be much easier for her to show up. It is, if you will, the original stairway to heaven. Ah, dear lady, did you know that your stairway lies on the whispering wind? Anyway, <clears throat> there, Martin Luther to Led Zepp. You, you, come on, doing my best. Okay, the offense here is that man had begun to shape God in his own image. That God had needed help to come down and get to the temple where he could participate with them. Well, whatever the explanation is, some people even say it was because they were refusing to scatter over the earth. I didn't go there because it didn't, wasn't as um, powerful to me. Um, but regardless of what the cause was, God was having none of it, right? This isn't going to happen. So as I said... He stops the construction by confusing their language. God created division and disunity. And their division and disunity scattered them over the face of the earth. Again, it's an imposition by God to check the continuing evolution of the sinfulness of man. Right? Um, he does, God does this in other places in the scriptures too. One of my favorite, favorite verses is God talking... This is Isaiah 48, 11. And think about this in the context of him creating disunity in Babel. For my own sake, for my own sake I do this. How can I let myself be defamed? I will not yield my glory to another. Right? Good stuff. Okay, so let's talk about the sequence of events, of events sorry, um, that Babel kind of concludes before we begin the story of Abraham. And I'm going to kind of go through these rapidly and without turning pages, so bear with me. You will recognize most of them. 
First off, um, the original fall of Eve and Adam. Everyone always puts the Adam first, but you know, just read the text. Um, <laughs> there they were in paradise, eternal, beautiful, etc., and they had one simple rule. Just one, right? It says, do not eat from this tree. Uh, but Eve had a better idea. She wanted access to something more than she already possessed, which in her case was greater wisdom. And watch this. She questioned, then defied the authority of God. Therefore, initiating the downward spiral of the fall of man, interrupting the fellowship of God and man. I question authority, and then I defy it, because I have a better idea. The sin of the first pair was heinous and aggravated. It was not simply eating an apple, but a love of self, dishonor to God, ingratitude to a benefactor, disobedience to the best of masters, a preference of the creature to the creator. And all this, I know you guys all know the word. I say creature to the creator, and red flags are going off in your head. I'll get to that in a minute. That's from a uh, 19th century commentary. I like Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Okay, that's where it begins, interruption of fellowship with God. Then we go to Cain and Abel. God had somehow instructed these guys about how and what to sacrifice, right? Because the story plays out, Abel had a good sacrifice, Cain not so much, um, and so Abel got it right, and Cain didn't, and God kind of didn't favor him. And then he got upset, very upset, because he missed God's favor. And if you read it in 4, 6, and 7, God comes down and encourages him. And says, why, why are you so upset? If you do the right thing, you will be favored also. God's kind of conciliatory toward Cain. He says, but if you don't, Angela, what do you say? But if you don't, then what? Sin is crouching at the door. Right? So, um, but Cain had a better idea. You know the story? He callously and brazenly murdered his own brother, committing the first murder and shattered family life. Let's keep going. Um, in verse 4, 19 through 24, there's one of the original uh, gangsters um, whose name is Lamech. Now, just a quick side. <clears throat> I mentioned disputable things. Just go with me here for a second. Is when God created the first humans, he made a pair, like salt and pepper, right? Um, and one man and one woman... Check out 224. And that was his intention. But Lamech had a better idea. He invented polygamy. So he married two women, God, contrary to God's intention. Now this is really interesting. What drove him to marry a second woman, right? You might think um, that he was, uh, well, let me see, that he was oversexed, let's say, as a, as a word. Uh, so he may have been driven by lust and desire, but not necessarily for sex. Having more than one wife, now watch the politics here, could have been a strategy to build his family line quicker because family was power. Descendants were power in those days. And so he gained power and influence on an accelerated schedule. But it's worse. Then he kills some dude who injures him. Um, he says, yeah, I messed him up real good, right, is what Lamech says. He killed him. Then he brags to his wives about it. And then he misappropriates the words of God to justify his own behavior, right? 
He says, if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech will be avenged 77 times. God is not saying that. God spoke about Cain's revenge. Lamech came up with his own cultural imperative and then baptized it with God words. Right? Okay. Then, brace yourselves, there's the sons of God. This is in 6.1. We're getting very close to the end of the first work. There's a lot of opinions about who these guys are. This is the one I'm going with. I think the sons of God were the righteous descendants of the patriarchs who walked with God. You think Enoch. Enoch walked with God. Noah walked with God. They're guys who walked with God. So there's a, a kind of a line of those guys in the Bible. So they're sons of the righteous, really. And as such, and given God's design for marriage, and the lineage and all of that, they were expected to marry inside the line of the faithful. You would probably say this with me by this point, but the sons of God had a better idea. They saw the daughters of men, which probably refers to the daughter of the Canaanites and other nations who were not in the righteous chain, and married any of them they chose. Again, you see it, defiance, plus they married outside the community, diluting the lineage which is so important. And God's just done. He's just had it at that point. I'm not going to talk about the Nephilim. That's for coffee, right? Um, but he, he hits a breaking point. And this, point, this one I have to read to you because I don't like three of Genesis, but this is the most devastating verses, I think, perhaps in Scripture. So I'm going to read Genesis 6, starting in verse 5. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Uh, there's no weasel clause in that statement. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. That's a coffee talk too, by the way. Um, so the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, and creatures that move along the ground, and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. Okay? Those are gnarly words. But this idea of the inclination of evil is so important that it's repeated again over in 821 after the flood story. God says this, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though... Every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. That from childhood gets added on the second time he talks about this. But this is strong, strong, strong language. We have a problem. Anybody still believe people are basically good? Yeah. Okay, let's quickly talk about Babel and the advent of humanism. And you guys thought it was a renaissance, but really no, it was Babel. Uh, it's the culmination of the decline of man. We already talked about that. Francis Schaeffer calls it the first public declaration of humanism um, in 11.4. He says, they're kind of thinking, let's make a name for ourselves so that we can maintain a human unity and we can achieve social stability. But he sums it up like this. All of the divisions of the whole world are a result of sin and the righteous judgment of God. And that's uh, Francis Schaeffer's book, Genesis in Space and Time, which is really good. I would, I would recommend it. Pattern is this. Man goes astray. God imposes limitations and curses. The farther man moves away from God, the more God gives him over to his own evil desires. And yes, now I'll make the Romans one reference. 
that has the gnarliest list of how people get, right? Left to themselves. There's been a dilution of God in our experience. Both um, Dave referenced it last week. If you were here Christmas Eve, what Joy talked about, what Dave talked about, both referenced this sort of general issue. It's more reliance on ourselves. The Babel builders, they perceived a threat and were determined to protect themselves from it. And they didn't want to be scattered, so they engineered a solution that they believed would prevent it. So... Sometimes we rely on things like government or technology to solve our problems or to bring us success and comfort. Most of all, we rely on ourselves, our hard work, our ingenuity, our network. It's a guy, John Walton, in his NIV application commentary. Okay, if you remember 20 minutes ago, I said, this book is a mirror, right? When we look in this book, we get a picture of who we are, but be cautioned, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and, after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. Right? Or there's another challenge for us. Um, well, sorry. Sorry. I'm going to talk about this progression of offenses. I'm going to reduce it a little bit. And I'm going to ask you, do you see yourself here? Right? In any of these five things. And, or do we see ourselves accurately based on how Scripture talks about how we are? And this is the key one. Or do we have a better idea? There's a caution in using the Scriptures. And to illustrate it, there's nothing better than this line from an 80s pop song, because that's my favorite thing to quote. Mirror in the bathroom, I just can't stop it. Every Saturday you see me window shopping. I find no interest in the racks and shelves. Just 10,000 reflections of my own sweet self, 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 self. That is a caution on what to do, what not to do with this book. Okay, quickly, where do you see yourself? I'll give you the quick rundown. Eve couldn't bear the constriction of one simple rule. She chose to defy the authority of God. Cain asserted his right to hate and exact revenge even when God offered him counsel that would have brought him favor. Lamech, driven by lust for power and influence, went outside God's will, and he misappropriated the words of God to justify his own heinous actions. And the Babel builders, and transparently, this is the group in which I include myself. We nurture pet projects we believe will make a name for ourselves, and in so doing, we rob glory from God or just reduce him to a reflection of ourselves. <clears throat> Last week, Dave said, where do you still experience the venom of sin coursing through your life. And I will tell you, I wasn't going to do this, I'm going to tell you anyway, with me, it's my ego, right? And it's a construct of something I decided as a kid that I would achieve and accomplish and all of that in order to get you to love me, right? Um, was all that bad? No, but you know what ego stands for? Edging God out. So let me move on. 
Dave said, where do you still experience the venom of sin coursing through your life? I'll add, and when you see it, what do you do about it? Hmm. So, continuing recognition and acceptance of how we fall short, sometimes as reflected in this passage, that should lead us to repentance. Right? It's a kind of perpetual dying. We discover things about ourselves. I've walked with God with it for a long time. Right? And there's some of those issues that he just keeps coming back to. I describe it this way. is like my heart, um, God enters it, and he's like one of those shows where you get a cop going in a dark basement. And he's like a cop with a flashlight. Like they always hold it by their head. Right? And all that kind of stuff. And he's scoping around like this. Forgive me if I've told this story before. And then he goes, oh. And he fixes on something. And he says, Daniel, I'll have that. And I'm going, not that. Not that. That's how I make a name for myself. I said, I, I, I can't. I can't let go of that. And he says, I know you can't. Let me take it. This is how the process works, in my opinion. I know most of you in this room, and I know most of you have already believed in Jesus, and you are committed to him and devoted to him, and the seed of Jesus Christ is in you, being invasion of the body snatchers and slowly transforming you into an image of himself, right? That's just awesome. If you're in that position, you also know that the journey to union with Christ is paved through the valley of the shadow of death, your own. God can feel threatening when he calls for absolute faithfulness and surrender. And if you're just not believing in him at all, today's the day, right? I'm just making the point that you might be without God. You may never have trusted Christ as your savior, right? Again, I survey the room. I don't know. It could be, right? But you don't want to hold back from that. But clearly, I was aiming the message more at those of us who have followed him for a while, right? Don't stop taking account for who you are and what you have in you, right? And what still needs to die. So I'll leave you with a quote from another one of my heroes, Oswald Chambers. Those of you who read my utmost for his highest, it's a great meditation. Ask yourself this question. Do I want to be identified with his death, to be killed right out to all interest in sin, in worldliness, in self, to be so identified with Jesus that I'm spoiled for everything else but him? It's from December 23rd. Or maybe you have a better idea. Right? Maybe today's the day to get rid of that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that when we look into it, it can be ruthless in terms of calling us out for who we are and what we can be like without that restraining grace that you give us. Uh, And I pray as we contemplate this that it would spur us on to follow up on the questions we have about um, um, mysterious things in this text. But more than anything else, that you would really help us to, I want to say double down. Double down in our pursuit of knowing you through all the means 
available to us to know you better so that we can continue in that process of being conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And I just uh, thank you for these faithful um, who came out on Boxing Day um, to hear your word, and I pray that, um, that it might ring, the word might ring in their hearts and minds. In Christ's name, amen.